morning, Incarnation. If you don't know me, my name is Russell Vick, and I am the summer curate here at the church. And if you don't even know what that word means, curate, it's just a fancy Anglican term for pastor in training. So it has been a blessing and joy getting to know you during my short time here. And from small groups to birthday celebrations and Sunday potlucks, you have all truly been welcoming and hospitable to me. And I just want to begin by saying how truly grateful I am to be a part of this church. And as I've gotten the chance to talk to some of you about our church, I keep hearing this little phrase that people use to describe our congregation. Incarnation is often described as being a pilgrim church or a tabernacle church, a church that doesn't have pillars but rather has tent poles. And side note, if you're someone who likes to doodle or draw as a means to engage with the sermon, or if you're a kid who just needs to do that, that can be your assignment today. Um, Jara Incarnation Church as a tabernacle church, or a church without pillars, tent poles instead of pillars. And of course, a lot of this is said with some tongue-in-cheek, right? Um, after all, we don't own a building, and most of our earthly possessions are in a van. Um, but as I have watched and listened and rooted myself in this community, I have grown to see how the Lord is using our collective identity as pilgrim disciples to instill something good and true and beautiful among us. And in our gospel reading for today, Jesus gives us a picture of what it means to be a pilgrim disciple who faithfully follows him. Our text begins with a story that most of us have probably heard before. Jesus going from town to town, proclaiming the gospel of God's kingdom and healing every disease and affliction. And if we look back earlier in the chapter, we will see that Jesus has been already doing this, and in a way that seems breathless. So after Jesus calls Matthew to follow him, which was our passage last Sunday, the disciples of John come up to Jesus and then ask him a theological question about fasting in verses 14 through 17. And then in verse 18, as Jesus is in the middle of this theological discussion, a ruler interrupts him, and then asks him to come and raise his daughter from the dead. And while Jesus is on his way to revive this man's daughter, he heals a woman who has been constantly bleeding for 12 years. And right after he heals this woman and revives the ruler's daughter, the text says in verse 27, as he was passing on from there, two blind men come up to him and beg that he would heal them. And then as Jesus and his disciples were then going away from that story, in verse 32, he heals a mute man who has been oppressed by a demon. And after all of these things, which seemingly occurs back to back in breathless detail, and honestly makes me exhausted just reading it, Jesus stops, pauses, looks at the crowd that is following him. <coughs> and in light of everything we have just seen Jesus do, it feels like it was all building up to this one climactic moment. And so what does Jesus then do? He looks at the crowd and has compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then Jesus turns to his disciples and says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now at this point in the story, Everything that Jesus has done has been in accordance with his central ministry to call people to repentance because the kingdom of God is at hand. Every time Jesus preaches, he is pointing to the kingdom of heaven. 
Every time Jesus heals, he is pointing to the kingdom of heaven. And every time Jesus casts out demons, bringing spiritual liberation to those who are oppressed, he is pointing to the kingdom of heaven. This is the heart of Jesus' ministry. This is his work. And now, Jesus empowers his disciples to do this work. To heal the sick, to raise the dead, to cleanse lepers and to cast out demons, and to do all of this as a means of proclaiming the kingdom of God. As one old preacher named John Wimber said back in the day, the disciples are doing the stuff, the stuff which Jesus has been doing all along, proclaiming the kingdom of God and manifesting its power in both word and deed. In our Old Testament reading, we see God tell Moses his plan to form the Israelites into a kingdom of priests who will ultimately be a blessing to the whole world. And in our gospel passage, Jesus' disciples are beginning to fulfill that promise and fulfill what God has intended for all of us, which is to manifest the kingdom in every aspect of our daily lives. This is the work that Jesus gave to his disciples, and this is the work which he gives to us. Now, if you're anything like me, perhaps you find that idea really, really intimidating. And just to be clear, I'm not saying that Jesus is calling us to be like him in every single way. Um, After all, as we acknowledge in our creed every week, Jesus is God and we are not. And as Paul made clear in his epistle to the Romans, we have been justified by faith and we have peace with God through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. But as Paul also demonstrated in that passage, we who follow God rejoice in the hope of the divine glory that will be one day given to us. And this hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And I think that's the answer to becoming like Jesus and doing his work. We can never in our power or in our own strength do the work of Jesus. But in the same way that Jesus empowered the 12 disciples with his spirit, he likewise empowers us to do the work that he has given us to do, to love and serve him as his faithful witness in whatever sphere he calls us to. And this work isn't easy. (laughs) Um, I mean, can you imagine the disciples' reactions when Jesus gave them their instructions for this ministry? Like, I can just imagine sort of the conversation that goes down. Um, Peter, John, before you guys go, I just have a cute, few quick things I want to say to you. You received the benefit of my ministry without paying for it, so you also are going to minister without payment. Don't accept any extra gold or silver or copper coins, and don't carry a bag for your journey or any extra clothes or even a walking staff. Whenever you go into town, I want you to rely on the provision of those who are most receptive to your ministry. But if you don't find anyone who is receptive to you at all, then just leave that town forget about it, and go to the next one. (laughs) Can you just imagine the looks that the disciples were giving to each other at this point? Uh, Wait, hold up, Jesus. Not only are you asking us to do this wild stuff of healing the sick, raising the dead, cleansing lepers, and casting out demons, stuff we've never done before, um, but you are asking us to do all of this without any means of providing for ourselves. How are we going to eat? Where are we going to sleep? 
Can you give us maybe some more explicit details? Like, could you just tell us right now the names of the people who will provide for us in the future? That would be fantastic. But Jesus doesn't give them answers to those sorts of questions. He only gives them his spirit. And in doing so, Jesus is ultimately asking his disciples to trust him. And I think this is the question that lies at the heart of everyone who chooses to follow Jesus. Do I really trust that Jesus is good? Will we truly believe what we said with the psalmist this morning? That the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his faithfulness endures from age to age. Jesus doesn't promise us that everything will turn out the way that we want it to. But his spirit is a guarantee that he is with us in every single circumstance of our life. And so as we go about our days, we can trust that the spirit of Jesus is leading us in our work. Because once again, as the psalmist said, he himself has made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Amen.